Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, John Avnet takes us behind the scenes of his new drama, Three Christs. The film follows a Michigan psychiatrist as he treats three paranoid schizophrenic patients, each of whom believes that he is Jesus Christ. In addition to Three Christs, Mr. Avnet's directorial credits include the feature films Righteous Kill, Up Close and Personal, The War, and Fried Green Tomatoes, the movies for television Between Two Women and Have a Little Faith, pilots for the series Boomtown, Bunker Hill, and Pleading Guilty, and episodes of the series Sneaky Pete and Justified. He was twice nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Movies for Television and Miniseries for 2007's The Starter Wife and 2001's Uprising. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Avnet spoke with director Rodrigo Garcia about filming Three Christs. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. The hardest part of this was doing a quick intro of you that would not take up 40 minutes. But here's a quick one, Uh, just a little refresher. Some of your career highlights as director, John, include Fried Green Tomatoes, Up Close and Personal, Red Corner, Righteous Kill, which brought together Pacino and De Niro. Um, You have some uh, notable producing credits. Risky Business, Less Than Zero, Black Swan, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, and my own movie, Four Good Days, which premieres at Sundance next week. That's shameless. Uh, on the small screen, Starter Wife and Uprising, both of which uh, for you were nominated for, among other things, the DGA Award for Directorial Achievement. Uh, you've directed many episodes of uh, our own uh, digital channel, Wigs, and Indigenous Media, outstanding pilots like Boomtown, innumerable series episodes, among several favorites of Justified. Uh, in the Guild, you serve, in case you've forgotten, under the Western Directors Council, the Union Pension and Health Plan, and on the Finance Committee. And because you have nothing else to do, you're also co-head of the Negotiating Committee, and you always manage to get 30 hours out of every day. Uh, anyway, many congrats on this movie. <clears throat> Thank you. You know, I've known you for 20 plus years, and you've been talking about this book for about 18 of them. Um, what, when you read the book, first, what was the, thematically, what about the book did you think, this is fascinating, and then what did you think why did you think it could become a movie? I thought the uh, I thought the premise of taking three paranoid schizophrenics who are delusional shared the same delusion, namely that they were Jesus Christ, and putting them in a room together was a really strong premise. And thematically, it was because it dealt with identity, which is such a fundamental part of all of our lives, and it did it in a uh, hyperbolic manner. Um, because they're, they're, they're such extreme characters. So I thought that was very powerful. I didn't know that it was going to take 20 years, 
uh, to figure out how to get it written and then made. But uh, it intrigued me then and intrigues me now. And then the other aspect of it was uh, a, a doctor who was very empathic by nature, who went too far, but did something for people who are neglected and who are, were, were warehoused and treated punitively often and with shock and restraints. I mean, if you ever hear Dr. Ellen Sachs talk about what it's like, she's a schizophrenic who's a professor of law, psychiatry, and psychoanalytics at USC, talk about what it is to be restrained. It's not fun. Uh, Maybe necessary at times, but again, is it done for punitive reasons or is it done for therapeutic reasons? Uh, And when you look at what we see today in L.A., 50,000 homeless who are not treated and should be treated by professionals, not police officers on the street or corrections officers in prisons. You know, I thought when I first read it, we could do better and more now more than ever. We have to do better. Talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the challenges of, of the adaptation. I know, uh, you know, you, you had a lot of ups and downs with that, as I remember, some lonely nights of the soul. Yes. Uh, when I first uh, was, I was given the, the book by uh, Stephen Haft, who had produced Dead Poets Society. And uh, so I went out to hire a great writer, and I found a great writer who had been nominated for an Academy Award and deserved the nomination. And uh, I worked with him, and it, was a, it didn't work. It just, we couldn't get something. And uh, the wife of Dr. Rokich, the doctor who did the original experiment, is also a professor at USC, Dr. Sandra Ball Rokich. And... Uh, she had been approached many times to make the movie, including by one or two of my favorite screenwriters uh, who had also failed. So I had the temerity to think maybe I could pull this off when all these very talented people had not pulled it off. Uh, she was a little bit more uh, sanguine about the prospects. And uh, so after I failed with the writers, I did what I always do, which is I said, okay, I'm gonna write it myself, except I needed help. And that's when I found Eric Nazarian, a young, brilliant writer who had written a script called Giant that I thought was fantastic. And I thought if I could work with Eric, maybe we could pull this off because uh, uh, I, I don't think of myself as a talented writer as the way I think of many of my friends, including Rodrigo, and as, as, as really gifted writers. I think I'm a functional writer. And I tend to <clears throat> have a lot of self-hatred when it comes to reading my own work. With Eric, I knew I would be nicer. <laughs> and uh, so we started this collaboration that lasted over a long period of time. Uh, and there were a lot of sleepless nights. And, uh, but I had, uh, I had a real drive to try and get it made. And I had uh, the good fortune of having many friends who are great writers and great filmmakers who would read the stuff and were charitable in the way they mutilated the material so that I could come back for another task. And I will say, in my own defense, I am... I do not give up. So that was a helpful quality. And then my, my, my greatest encouragement was when I started casting, and the actors actually really liked the script. Of course, I looked at them like, really? <laughs> you really like it? Yes. Uh, you want to do it? Yes. I went, well, that's encouraging. <laughs> uh, so that's a short version of the sleepless nights and the sweat and the mental turmoil to try and figure out how to adapt you know, an actual true, true story and, and create what I would call, 
I've, I've done this before, a very similar world, you know, because I don't think there's any reality on film. You know, the camera is somewhere, obviously, in a fictional sense, but even in a documentary or cinema verite or a news story, someone's choosing. Someone's choosing where to put the camera. It's their view is influencing what you see. Uh, so as an audience, it either feels real to you or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, it doesn't work. And if it does, maybe it works. I mean, you have to get that to make it work. So uh, the other part of the, uh, both the preparation for the writing and for directing is Eric and I jointly and separately did a lot of research. And we had a, a uh, psychoanalyst, Dr. Aaron Stern, as one of the producers, who was our expert, which we needed. Because basically, I had to go to school and learn enough about paranoid schizophrenics to be able to work with the actors. Obviously, the writing is uh, a another problem. And by the way, one of the other things that I did like about the book was I loved the language. It's neological language, as it's said a couple times in the movie. Um, and on the surface, it doesn't make sense, but you hear it on the streets when you encounter people. And if you're a professional, you hear it in your profession who don't seem to make sense. And I thought that it was very, very rich. As a matter of fact, probably the richest language south of Shakespeare that I'd ever read. And uh, if I could make it accessible to an audience, then the audience would be forced to see the characters as people as opposed to patients and, 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 and see the similarities that we share as opposed to the differences. And that to me would be a successful experience if I could do that. So if the word England made sense at the end of the movie, you know, that, was, that was good. Uh, and if it defined the characters in terms of their behavior, which is really what was the directing was all about, you know, turning words into behavior. That's always the challenge, perhaps a little more challenging here. Uh, I mean, I think when a movie works, there's so many ways to go into it and discuss it, and you don't want to reduce it to, to the one thing. But I, I can tell you, you know, when I watch a movie, there's always an aspect of it that I say, that's what would have scared the wits out of me if I had to direct this. <clears throat> and in the case of this movie, I would say finding the three Christs, because they you know, you can write them, and a lot of their behavior and their language is on this, in the script. But in the case, I think, of, of mental patients, just the level of behavior of specific quirks, you know, how, how did you approach building those three? How did you work with the actors? A lot of actors who play these kinds of roles are reluctant to show you in rehearsal what they want to do. And ultimately, we have to feel for them, but you can't pander to the audience nor be disrespectful about the disease. So that, that I thought was a deep dive there. Uh, yeah, well, the way I uh, approach things that terrify me is I start early on them. So I had the good fortune of working with Walton Goggins for about six years on Justified, and I thought he'd be a great you know, Leon. I just thought he was just a natural. And, uh, and, and why Leon? Why not one of the other two guys? Well, because he's so physical and alpha male and frightening. And also, he's very attractive, you know, I think, to most women. And uh, he's got a tremendous charisma. And I thought he had the courage to, to go out there. And so I talked to him about it when I was directing him one day. And he said he liked the idea. I gave him the script. He read it. And he was, uh, you know, positive, which, again... I mean, it sounds funny because I've done a lot of things. It's helpful to get some positive response now and then, you know, along the way. 
And uh, more important than that was I actually read the script with them a couple of times. It was very helpful for me to hear it. And it, how, how much was he showing you about what could be when he was reading it? I, I didn't want to see anything. I didn't want him to play the character. I, I don't believe in rehearsal playing scenes in a, in a demonstrative external way. What I believe in is a process of helping them internalize the character. And in this case, as you point out, understanding the nature of this behavior and turning it specific to these characters and then again internalizing it. So uh, once I started this process with Walton, he started getting excited and uh, that was good. And then you know, when I thought about doctors, I thought, well, Richard, who I'd worked with and I knew pretty well, is a very empathic person and he hasn't played that, that often on camera. And I thought, you know, if he, if he was interested, he would probably be a good Dr. Stone, and you'd see something that you hadn't seen, perhaps, and maybe that would be, you know, fun for an audience and moving, because obviously, the fundamental decision I made when it came to adapting the script, adapting the book, was that it's a story of the fourth Christ, because in effect, the three Christs really their characters change very little. They they change in profound ways because they develop relationships, but you know they're not walking out of there going everything's cool, everything's fine. So it is the descent of one person into a Christ-like position where he crosses a boundary and he has to ask himself some very painful questions. You know, was what he did worth it or not? So when I started working with Richard, first of all, Richard really liked the script. That was encouraging. And that was about a year or so before we started shooting. So we started talking about it and he'd read stuff. Again, it wasn't readings as a full performance. It was just more for the music of the words and looking for obvious failures and, and minefields and so on and so forth. Uh, and then Richard, because I knew him, was also involved with the casting, and he finds me to be terribly slow in my casting. I think I'm really good at it, but I am slow. Uh, but I also have had great actors. I mean, I really had a great fortune. Uh, so <clears throat> Bradley I had worked with, and I'd worked with Richard and Bradley on Red Corner, and you know we had worked with them, and I thought, you know, he's such a brilliant actor. He's so smart. You know, could he do something? Well, he read the script independent and called me and said, I want to do one of these characters. I said, which one? He said, Clyde. I went, okay, let's talk. <laughs> so we met and we started talking about it. And he's so smart and so facile. And he, he, you know, he was secretly fairly terrified uh, about it. And and the way he dealt with the terrified was he'd read the book, he'd read everything, and he'd, he'd do a lot of research. And I would help them in any way I could with the research, and I'll get into that more specifically in rehearsal. And then Peter was the last of them, you know? And I thought, yeah, that'd be great, you know? Because it's not about religion. It's about people, it's about people trying to have power when they don't feel powerful. And, and also... The, the, the notion of Christ to them was goodness, you know, unlimited goodness. And like most of us, we don't have that. And Bertrand Russell, at the beginning of the book, it was quoted by uh, Dr. Rokic, and, and, and I think the quote was, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, all of us would like to be, you know, all good, you know, all perfect. Uh, and very few of us give up very few of us can't give up on the possibility of being that person. And that's what the Christ were. They couldn't give it up. Whereas all of us, to the extent we have these urges to be really good, 
at some point we realized we're certainly not godlike. Um, so when I met with Peter, you know, he also really liked the script. I thought, okay, this is a good sign. Uh, and he, and he said to me, I remember it really clearly. He said, uh, I don't want to use my normal tricks and tropes. How do I play somebody who's insane? And I said, you play him sane. You play him sane. And he went, hmm. So that was the... And, and by that you meant he's not insane, he's a sane person with his own belief system. He's sane, you're insane. Okay, you know what I mean? From, from his point of view. From his perspective, he's making sense. And then when we got into rehearsal after the first two days of Bradley and Peter making fun of me hour after hour, it was really enjoyable. Although I was getting a little anxious that we might not get our work done. But I thought, okay, they're forming relationships, blah, 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 blah. Uh, we started really getting into it. And then when Walton joined, it was like they all went, whoa. Because Walton came in, woof, because he had been working on this for a long time. And you started to get the sense of relationship. And then the key thing, I mean, you touched on it briefly, Rodrigo, which is behavior. And I mentioned it briefly, too. Which is everything in directing is behavior. And particularly, if the words don't make sense, how are you going to learn what they mean? It's behavior. So Clyde, I mean, the easiest example is, if you say, would you like to sit down? What does he say? No. What does he do? He sits. You know, do you want to lead the meeting? No. What does he do? He leads the meeting. You know, that was his personality. And, and in a way, like his, you know, his version of uh, the Pepsodent commercial, his feet are stuck in wet cement. You know, <laughs> that was a, a kind of goofy version of the jingle at the time. You know, he didn't want to go out on the ice. You know, he didn't want to do this, that. And he was frightened. Uh, and, and when you look at behavior, when he's asked by Richard to walk over and sit next to Peter, it's like you just asked him to do the most humiliating, horrible thing in his life. And all that's in his face and in his body. And it takes the time, whatever time it takes, for him to show that and for you as an audience to get it. And again, to feel for these people. The whole thing is to understand them as people and not be put off by those things that, that are different. Uh, so everything was going to be about behavior. And the other element, and, and what I said to them, I said one thing that was, I think, wise. Because they're experienced professionals, and Juliana was there and Charlotte Hope was there, and Stephen Root showed up. Uh, I said, don't make any decisions quickly. Take your time. You know, this is not about facile solutions. This is about finding something that's really resonant with you. And if you can have the patience and overcome the anxiety of not knowing, I think ultimately the choice will be a much stronger choice. I think that was a horrifying thought, but it was a really good one. Uh, it really allowed them to own it and to take some time. And then in one of the days of the rehearsal, I had this uh, psychoanalyst, Dr. Stern, show up, and I let them talk with him as much as they wanted. Without me there, they could do whatever they wanted, just so they could find their own way to understand certain things. What kind of things? Well, if you're paranoid, you tend to project your feelings on other people. And how does that make the worldview, how, how does that change your worldview? So for instance, if you think you may attack somebody, you would say, well, they're gonna attack me. Well, how are you gonna walk past that person? Right, I mean, the answer is, you're not gonna walk close to them. You're gonna keep your distance. 
right? If you look at the beginning of the movie, I didn't say to them, Walton, you go over there. Brad, you go over there. Peter, you go over there. I just rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, not actually the scenes, and let them find their place. And I wanted them to own that place. I wanted them to make it their own. And part of it was, you know, to me, as a director, if you can tell the story visually, uh, then you're doing your job as a filmmaker. Uh, so one of the things was, you know, they're three separate Christs. Can they be in one room together? Obviously, they battle. And ultimately, when Walton sits down next to the two of them, it's pretty cool, isn't it? You know, and then when he raises his hand and he nominates Joseph, you know, it's very cool. And then when Joseph gets up to walk, he's so proud. Now, I didn't tell Peter to walk the, with the, the way he walks like he's just been crowned king of England. But he understood what this meant to this character yeah. to whom England and, and music, you know, as he says, if my music was playing, we would all be divine. Okay. I happen to agree with him, by the way. Uh, so, you know, finding those moments were really, really critical. And in Walton's case, it was finding the moments where he went inside because he was very bombastic at times. And I remember one time after he did something, it was quite good. I said, oh, just pull it in, internalize it, hold it down, you know. And the moment became much more compelling to me and to him, more importantly, because it gave him a kind of touchstone to, to look at how he wanted to play other things. So what I would describe is a, you know, patience. And I would always, I, I like to direct in a way that I don't want to tell my best ideas to the actors, if possible, ever. Uh, I'd rather they find it themselves, partially because I don't want to have a good idea or a very good idea that scares away a great idea. And it's more likely that le mot juste will be found by them as opposed to by me. Uh, and if they don't get there, I always have my ideas and I can give it to them. And also, when I hold back, they always want to know what I'm thinking, which is, makes it easier for them to take it. And over time, I've figured out, say less, be real specific, be very clear, give them an action. And it's more likely that they'll be able to accomplish it. They'll be able to do it. And, and that is a really cool thing. When you give a direction, you think it's pretty good. And then what they do is fantastic. And you think, well, the direction wasn't that good. It's them. They're that good. But you didn't get in the way of it. Going back um, uh, just for a moment for the character of the doctor, <clears throat> a couple of things. I, I was going to ask you before whether that arc of the doctor was in the book or is that something that you build for the movie? And second, you, you know, you must have had to, you must have had the worry that this could become the Three Christ show because there's such compelling, beautifully played, lovable people but you know the story is his. Well, the, the thing is, they, the better they are, the more they make of his character to me. First of all, the arc is largely from the book. Uh, so that was helpful, but again, it had to be in our world, this very similar world, something that uh, played for an audience who hadn't read the book and came from you know, all the variegated backgrounds that an audience comes from. Uh, so with, with Richard... The key thing for him was to learn how to listen really carefully. And, and ultimately, he got one idea from Dr. Stern that was really good, which is when Leon came over and, he, and Richard said, okay, you've frightened all of us. You know, would you please sit down? And acknowledging his fear 
as a doctor was really important because emotional truth and intellectual truth are really critical in general, but perhaps even more so with paranoid schizophrenics, who often, as it says in the, in the film, are, are, are very perceptive, incredibly perceptive. So in order to earn their trust, which is the only way to get a relationship, you have to allow yourself to be there. And he had to do that as a character. Uh, and that did follow from Rokic, you know, uh, quite a bit. Uh, so, you know, sometimes I blunder ahead not knowing where I'm going to get, but just having confidence in the process and the people that I have. So some of that also was Richard was going to be a different Dr. Stone than another actor might have been. So you had to find, you had to let him find how he would play it and then see what would happen. The other thing is he was directing, if you will. So he's directing even if he's not telling them what to do. Uh, so in doing that, you know, he's, he's very active. Uh, and of course his character, you know, as Jane Alexander, who is a wonderful actress, she is, God, is she great. Uh, you know, he goes on a descent. You know, he's the one who goes to a very dark place. And in reality, that's what happened to Rokic as well. And he was very, very apologetic when he wrote the afterwards, 20 years after he had finished the experiment, because he was concerned about ethical violations and confrontational uh, tactics. Uh, so I felt Richard's character you know, had a strong, active thing. And if he didn't feel that, then perhaps he was the wrong actor for it. I, I think it was a very good um, <clears throat> choice to already start in the, <clears throat> in the aftermath of the crisis. I think that also contributed. You know, he, he, he's looking like a, a man who just went three rings and three uh, rounds and lost. I know that look. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, talk about, uh, you, so you've, you've worked with uh, Denis, your DP, and just about your heads of department a little bit. Well, Denis is a, uh, you know, it's, it's a fantastic collaboration for me. I hope he feels the same way. I think he does. Uh, you know, we started working, I produced the movie on Abby Hoffman, and then he uh, was a DP on uh, Uprising, which he won the ASC Award, did a brilliant job uh, doing the cinematography a very long 73, 74-day shoot all over Europe. Uh, and he's, he prepares very carefully, and he gives me choices. Uh, and we've developed a language, because I don't know how many movies we've done together, six, seven, and pilots. And I think he even did some of Boomtown. He stuck around for a little while until he got bored. Uh, but he, he's, he really has a cinematic feeling and at the same time, he gets some of what I wanted, which was an inobtrusive camera uh, that had a little life to it, but didn't didn't call attention to itself. Uh, I thought that was useful for this. Very, very classically shot, the movie, I thought. Yeah, I wanted it to be relatively invisible. I didn't want you to be aware of it. At the same time, you know, this is the first time I've seen the film in a while. And seeing it here, wow, what a, it's the most amazing theater in the world. Uh, and it, the thing that struck me, it sounds so obvious, you know, but it's such a visceral experience when you do a film well. And by well, I mean all the elements. So it's obviously the lighting and the camera work, but the sound and the mix, Mike Paragon and Patrick, you know, who, who uh, edited it, got nominated for Green Book, by the way, for an Oscar. Uh, you know, it's the 
the experience is so different in a theater. It's not just the theatrical part of it in terms of the audience, but it's so visceral. And in a, a show where there's a lot of dialogue, if you have those elements, I mean, the wind in the tower, you know, or even on the ice, the crunching of the feet. Now, I, I like to do that stuff. You're just not going to hear it in most, you know, certainly not on a phone, you know, or on a tablet, you know. You know, it, it's just such a different experience. And I wanted to make this for the theater. It took long enough to get in the theaters, but it really... Sitting here, I go, wow, that's that's what I, I, I thought the exteriors, their look and their sound and their feel, you know, were always very meaningful because some, you know, a lot of it is, of course, about, you know, people who are four walled, you know. Well, the, you know, we had a good place to shoot at Mount St. Mary's. We only had one day in an actual institution because the budget was so ugly. Uh, so we had to figure out on a production design level how to sell the institution and make it feel real. Uh, but again, Denis does these tests for me and, and looks and he sends me photographs and there were sort of some Kodachrome images that we liked and then pull a little bit out of it. And then we fight in the DI all the time and that's really the fun part of it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but, but it's, a, a lot of it is looking for the language, you know, of the film. So to me, when I, when I talk about a visual element, it's similar in some ways to one of the things I did in Fried Green Tomatoes, which is you start with the glasses, right? And then you could tell the story just on the glasses, you know? And that's what I want to do. I don't think you're going to necessarily be paying such careful attention to it when you watch it the first time, but you're aware of it, you know? And certainly by the end, you know, you get the motif of the glasses being broken, and then you learn, of course, how they got broken. And the question was, whose glasses got broken? You know, and how did it happen? You know, and why is he, you know, beat up the way he is? And that is, you know, I like that kind of storytelling as an audience, as a director, you know, working with other directors as a producer. Uh, and it was, as I said, similar to in Fried Green Tomatoes. Early on, you see the cafe where it says Fried Green Tomatoes served hot at the Whistle Stop Cafe in this window. And it's old and there's a gunshot wound and there's a spidering on the window. And then later, you see Mary Stewart and Mary Louise painting the window. And then later on, you see the window with this yellow uh, shade on it when the Klan shows up you know, to go after Big George, and you see the bullet go through it. And then at the end of the movie, you're there again, and you see the image from the beginning. And now you can tell the story, if you will, of the cafe, or in this case, you know, of these three Christs, and in particular, you know, Joseph and Stone. Uh, so that that appeals to me, and then you know, obviously, you know, the the image on the ice was, you know, it, it, you know that that's the brain, that's the mind, you know. I, I mean, it both looks like a, you know a certain, I don't know how you say it, CT version, a, or, a, a, a slice, a, a cut, slice, yeah, yeah, cross section, yeah, yeah. And then some people were worried that the ice was going to break. I love that, you know, Walton says the water lake is frozen. He's Christ. He's walking on water. <laughs> uh, so those are those are fun things. And, and, and again, all that comes into play in terms of how you set up what the look is. And then you start executing it all the way through DI, which you know very well. I think the orchestra is about to play. What's, what song is it going to play? Thank you, John. And congratulations. Thank you, Rodrigo. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. 
If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for more great episodes, including our Meet the Nominees series, which will feature a conversation with DGA Award-nominated theatrical feature film directors. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 